Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we eat your brain for weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the 24-7 lectures from the Ig Nobel Prizes and memory transfer through ingestion of RNA. Cannibal memories. The microscopic roundworm, Cynorhabditis elegans, has fascinated scientists for decades. These roundworms have such small brains that all the connections between the neurons have been mapped and digitised into functional models. When these functional models are downloaded into robot bodies, they exhibit unprogrammed worm behaviour. We uploaded the worms! Experimenters a long time ago found that flatworms can learn something, get ground up and fed to another flatworm who will then behave as if they've learned the same skill. If you decapitate those flatworms, they grow a new head and yet retain their knowledge. Mother roundworms that learn about danger can pass that knowledge on to their children for several generations. Injecting RNA from trained marine snails into untrained marine snails transfers the training. Researchers at Princeton University have now found an important part of the mechanism needed for memory transfer in worms and snails. What's the difference between flatworms and roundworms? Flatworms don't have a body cavity. Roundworms do have a body cavity. In 1959, Dr. James McConnell at the University of Michigan had the idea that memory was stored outside of the brain, as RNA, all over the body. This goes against both how we understand the function of RNA in relaying instructions to DNA about making proteins and how we understand memory as a function of neurons and their connections. Dr. McConnell tested his theory by training flatworms, Dugizia, Dorotocephala, cutting their heads off and waiting for new heads to grow, and then testing whether the worms remembered their training. He trained the worms to curl up in response to lights by administering small electric shocks. The worms learned to curl up every time. He cut off their heads and waited a month for new heads to grow. He then switched on the lights and the worms with their new heads curled up straight away. Dr McConnell went further. He cut the worms into thirds and quarters and after they regenerated, they still appeared to retain their memory of the task. They curled up when the light went on. This suggests that somehow the memory of that task had been stored not only in the worm's brain, but in the rest of its body, just as he guessed. Then he went that extra step further to the dark side. And in the next experiment, he bred a new set of worms, trained them to do the task, and then killed them. He ground up the dead worms and fed their dead bodies to another set of worms. The new worms hadn't been trained in this task before, but when they were presented with this task, they learned to do it far faster than the original worms did. Somehow, 
By consuming the previous worms, they'd manage to consume their memories as well, or at least be primed to learn their skills much more quickly. Dr. McConnell's first paper was titled The Effects of Regeneration Upon Retention of a Conditioned Response in the Planarian and was published in the Journal of Comparative and Physiological Psychology. The next paper was reported to be titled Memory Transfer Through Cannibalism in Planarians, published in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry. But I can't find the paper online, just broken references to it. Many other biologists managed to successfully repeat the experiment, but some others found that the cannibalistic worms didn't show a significantly greater memory of the training. Many more researchers found the task of training worms nearly impossible. So the whole thing was dismissed as crazy. Dr. McConnell started his own academic journal, the Journal of Biological Psychology. He originally published satirical articles with titles like Learned Helplessness in Pet Rocks, Rockus Petus, alongside the serious scientific articles in the journal. But he received complaints that it was difficult, if not impossible, to tell which were the serious and which were the satirical. So he published the Worm Runner's Digest, with satirical articles and worm comics, upside down with its cover as the back of the Journal of Biological Psychology, to make it clear which articles were satire. Dr. McConnell found that this solution led to librarians returning the journal to the publisher with a complaint that it was improperly bound. I'll put links to the digitised versions of Worm Runner's Digest so you can read them online. The experiment was replicated in 2013 by researchers at Baylor University College of Medicine who found that Dugesia dorotocephala worms could be trained while worms of the Dugesia tigrina species could not. They conditioned Dorotocephala worms to avoid a light and fed them to Tigrinia worms and found that the Tigrinia worms now responded to the light in the same way as the conditioned worms. Their paper was titled Planaria, Interspecific Transfer of a Conditionability Factor Through Cannibalism and was published in the journal Psychonomic Science. Also in 2013, a team from Tufts University in Massachusetts used an automated worm training machine, as you do, to avoid any bias caused by handling the worms. The device contained four blocks of three isolated chambers, each of which contained one worm in a petri dish, allowing the simultaneous tracking and training of 12 individual worms at a time. Continuously and independently, cameras in each cell determine and record the position of each worm. Worms were trained by being allowed to find food in a textured petri dish so they could remember it was a safe space and go straight there. Flatworms circle around food in a new space until they're sure it's safe. Once the worms were trained, they cut off their heads and allowed them to regenerate. The regenerated worms with new heads went straight for the food showing that they remembered that the textured Petri dish was safe. The Tuft University paper was titled An Automated Training Paradigm Reveals Long-Term Memory in Planarians and Its Persistence Through Head Regeneration and was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Fast forward to 2018 and researchers from the University of California, Los Angeles successfully transferred memories between trained and untrained 
marine snails. The snails were trained to react strongly to a soft touch in a way that's easy to tell the difference from untrained snails. They gave mild electric shocks to the marine snail Aplesia californica. Shocked snails learned to withdraw their delicate siphons and gills for nearly a minute after they'd received a weak touch. Snails that have not been shocked only withdraw briefly. The researchers extracted RNA from the nervous systems of snails that have been shocked and injected the material into untrained snails. When this RNA was injected, these never shocked untrained snails withdrew their siphons for extended periods of time after a soft touch. Control snails that had received injections of RNA from snails that had not received shocks did not withdraw their siphons for as long. The team seemed to have transferred the training memory from one snail to another with an injection. Next, they looked at the neurons from the snails in petri dishes to see how excitable they were. The neurons from the RNA-injected snails were just as excitable as the neurons from the snails that had been trained with shocks. Exposure to RNA from snails that had never been shocked didn't cause the cells to become more excitable. Neurons from snails that hadn't been shocked or injected with RNA from shocked snails were not excitable. The lead researcher said that the results suggest that memories may be stored within the nucleus of neurons, where RNA is synthesised and can act on DNA to turn genes on and off. He thinks memory storage might involve these epigenetic changes, changes in the activity of genes that are mediated by RNA. His paper was titled RNA from trained aplasia can induce an epigenetic engram for long-term sensitization in untrained aplasia and was published in the journal eNeuro. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Back in 2012, a team from Princeton University in New Jersey found that roundworms encounter dangers in their environment, such as a pathogenic bacteria, which seems like an appealing food source, but makes the worm sick. Mother worms who are sickened by this bacteria learn to avoid eating the bacteria again. And somehow this avoidance behaviour is inherited by the offspring for the next four generations. Shades of Lamarckian evolution. Mother worms who have eaten the pathogenic bacteria absorb a bacterial small RNA called P11 through their intestines, which touches off a signal in the worm's germline reproductive cells that is then transmitted to a neuron that controls behaviour. Afterwards, the new behaviour is conveyed to future offspring through changes made to germline cells. Their paper was titled Pi RNAs can trigger a multi-generational epigenetic memory in the germline of C. elegans, and was published in the journal Cell. Now in 2021, the Princeton University team have released a new paper showing that avoidance behaviour can also be transferred from trained worms to other untrained adult worms. They killed and crushed up the trained worms and fed them to the untrained worms who then avoided eating the pathogenic bacteria. The offspring of these worms, that had absorbed the training by eating trained worms, also inherited the training for four generations, just as if their mothers had learned the hard way. The team say that what they've discovered is that a retrotransposon called CER1, that forms viral-like particles, seems to carry memory 
not only between tissues, from the worm's germline to its neurons, but also between individuals. A retrotransposon is a genetic element, similar to a virus, that has inserted itself into a host animal's DNA, where it's passed on through the generations. The researchers found that the transposon gene CER1 is present in the DNA of the worm's germline cells. When they knocked out CER1 with RNA interference, mother worms could not learn to avoid the pathogenic bacteria just by being exposed to P11 in the bacteria. Mother worms who had learned avoidance of the bacteria but had the gene knocked out had offspring that did not inherit the avoidance behaviour. Nor did untrained worms learn the behaviour when eating the trained knockout worms. Worms who had their CE1 gene knocked out who were fed trained worms with CE1 intact didn't learn to avoid the pathogenic bacteria. CER1 is the key. The authors found that two wild worm strains that naturally lack the CER1 gene are unable to pass on any behaviour in any way nor to learn from eating trained worms. So we now know that the CER1 transposon gene is essential for passing on memories to other worms, either through inheritance or through cannibalism. But we don't understand the full RNA mechanism in these viral-like particles for transfer of memories. The Princeton team's paper was titled The Role of the CER1 Transposon in Horizontal Transfer of Transgenerational Memory and was published in the journal Cell. The hope of all the researchers is that as well as exploring the strange phenomena of memory transfer through RNA in worms and snails, that the work will also help us better understand the mechanism of memory in humans, to treat the many diseases of memory loss. Now I know what you're thinking, but some researchers tried the same experiments with rats and mice without success. The theory was that worms' digestion enzymes don't destroy the RNA memory molecules, but mammal digestive juices do. Sorry, but eating your teacher won't give you their skills. And finally, here's some of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremonies 24-7 lectures, hosted by Mark Abrams. Previous winners of the Ig Nobel Prize must give a 24-second technical summary of their research, which is brutally cut off with loud music, if they go over time followed by a seven-word explanation that anyone can understand. Now get set for something special, the 24-7 lectures. We have invited several of the world's top thinkers to tell us a little bit about what they are thinking about. Each will describe their subject twice. First, a complete technical description in 24 seconds, and then a clear summary that anyone can understand in seven words. The time limits will be enforced by various musicians. The next 24-7 lecture will be delivered by Dr. Elena Bodnar. In the year 2009, she was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize for Public Health for inventing a brassiere that in an emergency can be quickly separated into a pair of protective face masks, one to save your life the other to save the life of some lucky bystander. Please welcome Dr. Elena Bodnar. Her topic, the emergency bra. First, a complete technical description in 24 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. The emergency bra is a personal protective garment with a primary function to support the breast. 
it can quickly and easily transform into face masks to decrease inhalation of harmful particles in case of an emergency. During pandemics such as COVID, it also serves the additional function of protecting others by reducing exposure to the respiratory secretions of the mask wearer when standard PPE not readily available. And now a clear summary that anyone can understand in seven words. On your mark, get set, go. Emergency bra masks. Protect others. Care. Wear. Share. Thank you, Dr. Bodnar. Thank you. You're welcome. The next 24-7 lecture will be delivered by a biologist who won a Nobel Prize in 2008 for the discovery and development of the green fluorescent protein, GFP. Here is Marty Chalfie, his topic, green fluorescent protein, GFP. First, a complete technical description of the subject in 24 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. The 11 beta strands in a single alpha helix of the Aquaria Victoria Green fluorescent protein form a beta can, which autocatalytically cyclizes the peptide backbone between serine 65 and glycine 67 to form a resonance structure that absorbs light at 470 nanometers and emits light at 509. Transcriptional and translational fusions allow biological processes in eukaryotes, prokaryotes, and archaea to be studied in real time. And now a clear description that anyone can understand in seven words. On your mark, get set, go. GFP, shine blue, see green, watch light. The next 24-7 lecture will be delivered by an associate professor at the National Institute of Informatics in Tokyo, Japan. Please welcome Masako Kishida, her topic computer bugs. First, a complete technical description in 24 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. A computer bug is an error or flaw in software or hardware that causes unexpected behaviors. Whether you use Python, Java, Scratch, MATLAB, Haskell, or the SQL brain crash, your code, or white space to write computer code, the more complex the program is, the more bugs there are. One of the bugs that is fuzzy, finicky, persnickety to fix is a Heisen bug which seems to disappear when we try to investigate it. And now a clear summary that anyone can understand in seven words. On your mark, get set, go. Bugs. Can't find them. Can't avoid them. The next 24-7 lecture will be delivered by a professor in the Wildlife Ecology and Conservation Department at the University of Florida. In the year 1997, he was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize for Entomology for writing the book That Gunk on Your Car, which identifies the insect splats that appear on automobile windshields. Please welcome Mark Hostetler. His topic, insects. First, a complete technical description in 24 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. Insects are the most diverse group of animals with over 1 million species described. Flying, swimming, and crawling, we encounter them every day, often without even realizing it. 
incredibly important as pollinators and as part of the food chain, we cannot live without them. Incredible animals. Think of a butterfly closing from a chrysalis. I'm sitting here on my porch, there's butterflies all around me, all kinds of potatoes. And now, a clear summary that anyone can understand in seven words. On your mark, get set, go. Insects are part of everything we eat. The next 24-7 lecture will be delivered by professor and head of entomology at the University of Illinois and editor-in-chief of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, May Berenbaum. Her topic, the insect apocalypse. First, a complete technical description of the subject in 24 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. Long-term studies now document catastrophic declines in insect biomass and diversity in what's called the insect apocalypse. Anthropogenic causes include habitat loss via monoculture, agriculture, urbanization, resource extraction, and greenhouse gas emissions. Declines are consequential because insects contribute irreplaceable ecosystem services, including pollination for the world's angiosperms, nutrient cycling, and biocontrol. They're keystone species in a myriad of trophic webs on which humans And now a clear summary that anyone can understand in seven words. On your mark, get set, go. Insects, you'll be sorry when they're gone. The next 24-7 lecture will be delivered by an entomologist at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior at the University of Constance, Germany. In the year 2015, he was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize jointly in the fields of entomology and physiology for carefully arranging for honeybees to sting him repeatedly on 25 different locations on his body to learn which locations are the least painful, the skull, middle toe tip, and upper arm, and which are the most painful, the nostril, upper lip, and penis shaft. Please welcome Michael Smith. His topic, bee sting. First, a complete technical description of the subject in 24 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. Honeybee defensive maneuvers typically target key regions on mammalian subjects, suggesting that evolutionary pressures have shaped the superorganism for the efficient delivery of defense. While pressure pain is well characterized during the human experience, we, me, want to determine if, and if so, how, the painfulness of honeybee stings would map across the human body, similar to a sting pain cement century homunculus. The most painful locations aggregated airways, suggesting that the human body prioritizes pain to match vulnerability. <laughs> And now a clear summary that anyone can understand in seven words. On your mark, get set, go. Bee stings. Some spots are seriously painful. Thanks to Mark Abrams and the Annals of Improbable Research, improbable.com. I'll play a specially edited version of the 2021 Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony for the Christmas special of Diffusion. When the moon shall have faded from the sky. And the sun shall shine at noonday, a dull cherry red. And the ice cap shall have crept 
downward to the equator from either pole. When all cities shall have long been dead and all life shall be on the very verge of extinction on the globe, then on a bit of lichen growing on the bald rocks beside the eternal snows of Panama shall be seated a tiny insect preening its antennae in the glow of the worn out sun representing the sole survivor of animal life in this our earth, a melancholy bug. It could happen. After all, the odds favor the bug over man by at least 500,000 to one. For instance, the descendants of one pair of houseflies, during the six months of one spring and summer, would number 191 million, million, million if all of them lived and reproduced normally. That's equivalent to a layer of flies four and a half feet deep and 300 flies to the cubic inch covering the entire United States. But only a minute fraction of them survive. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.